Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for not just the teaching that is in your word, but the stories that are in your word, for they also are instructive. They also are inerrant. They also are adequate to lead us to righteousness. And this morning, our Father, we find a story that that not only is fitting for a Palm Sunday, but it is a story that is fitting for us in our weakness, in our discouragement, in our despondency, in our fearfulness, in our anxiety. For here in this story, we find a Savior who is compassionate and competent to meet us in our need. And Father, might, might this account, a true account of a true Savior, minister to us to give us hope and confidence for the week ahead. Would you guide us and instruct us by this word, we pray our Father, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Who will care for you when you are suffering? Who will care for you if everyone is suffering? Who will care for you if connection and human touch are being restricted by the government? We are are not the first people to ask those kinds of questions. So some innovative people have have attempted in the past few years to come up with solutions when, when people are disconnected from other people. So, for instance, to comfort people who have dementia, Pero was invented. Pero has been described as a white-furred baby cyber seal that responds to sound and touch, makes cute seal noises when stroked, and turns its dark, appealing eyes towards your face, a sort of pet without having all of the drawbacks of, of an animal. A few years ago, a man named Dan Chen invented the end-of-life machine. It's not quite as ominous as it sounds. As the patient is is nearing the end of life, he, he lies next to a robot, which is pictured on the screen for you, and he places his arm under a caressing mechanism. And then as the patient slips out of this world, the robot gently strokes the person's arm while speaking to the patient. Hello, Susie. I am the last moment robot. I am here to guide you and help you through your last moment on earth. I am sorry that your family and friends can't be with you right now. But don't be afraid. I am here to comfort you. You are not alone. You are with me. Your family and friends love you very much. They will remember you after you are gone. Time of death, 1156. Goodbye, my friend. Chen has actually said that he didn't make the, pa- the machine to actually serve dying patients, but, but he made the machine uh, to see what the response would be to a device and to, to a device like this and to see if we are moving too greatly towards a dependence on machines. 
He actually says he has been disconcerted when people have asked him where they can buy it, for they want such a machine. We are desperate to find comfort in a world of suffering. Suffering isn't easy, is it? Suffering provokes questions. In the midst of suffering, Philip Yancey, whose, whose books, frankly, are not always very helpful, suggests that there are three questions that the sufferer is inclined to ask, and here I do agree with him. The sufferer is inclined to ask, is God listening to me? Can he be trusted? Does he care? It is that last question that I want to address this morning as we prepare for Easter Sunday next week and as we think about COVID-19. It is a question that many in our world are asking and it is a question that these inventors of these devices were also addressing. Does God care? Does God care about our suffering? Does He care what COVID-19 is doing? Does He care about our inconveniences with COVID-19? Does He care when people are dying? Does He care about the death of our loved ones? Does He care about our dying? Does He care about our potential dying? Does God care about suffering and sorrow as we approach death and as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? And if He does care, what will He do about it? To answer the question of God's compassion, I want to turn to this familiar story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus. It is, it is a story about death, but even more than a story about death, it is a story about Christ intentionally allowing a man to die, Lazarus, so that he could reveal a particular truth about death, about God's glory, about his compassion, and about his power. It is a story that reveals Christ to us in a remarkable way. We might summarize the passage in this way. Christ cares about death and about people who die. His silence, his seeming absence, his seeming distance does not mean he does not care. It does not mean he is not compassionate. What this story will demonstrate over and over again is that Christ cares about death, Christ cares about suffering, Christ cares about people who die, and, brothers and sisters, Christ is powerful to do something for those whom He loves. He cares, and He is competent. He is powerful. It is those two truths that we will see repeatedly in this account in John chapter 11. We're going to start with verses 17 to 37, and we will see the compassion of Christ. Does Jesus care that people die? Here in these opening verses in this section, we see the compassion of Christ. Does Christ care that people die? This story, actually, as we read verses 17 to 44, is Jesus' interaction with three different people, and it reveals Christ in three different ways. It is Christ and Martha, Christ and Mary, Christ and Lazarus. And in all three of these accounts, we see Christ's compassion, we see Christ's power, and we also see Christ moving us to where we will trust in Him and see His sufficiency. Let us first consider Christ and Martha and consider His compassionate word 
Christ and Martha and his compassionate word. Notice as, as Jesus comes to Bethany, as he comes near to Bethany, some, some people had come to console Mary and Martha. It was typical not only that people would come to be uh, with family when someone would die, but they would actually hire people to come. They would hire at least three people who would come, some who would play instruments and some who would weep and wail. Certainly those would be among these who had come. And these had been attempting to console Mar- Martha and Mary. They would typically stay for up to a week with the family. And they're, con- they're, they're attempting to give comfort to the family, but it appears... It appears that Martha is not receiving the comfort that they are attempting to give her because as soon as she hears that Jesus is coming towards him, she runs and leaves from those who are giving comfort to the only one who can give true comfort, and that is she goes to Jesus. And notice what she says to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We know from the later portion of this account, that that these were well-rehearsed words because Mary uses the identical phrase with Jesus. So evidently, the two sisters had been saying this repeatedly to one another. If Jesus had just been here, if Jesus had just been here, if Jesus had just been here, these, these words reflect the meditation of Martha's heart. Martha had desires. She had a longing for Jesus to come. She she had an expectation that Jesus would conduct himself in a particular way. When Jesus would come, she believed that Jesus would do something particular, that Jesus would heal. In her mind, there was no question that Jesus would have healed her brother. She couldn't conceive that Jesus would have done anything except heal her brother She was missing a part of the story that Jesus had shared with the disciples, verse 4, where Jesus said, This sickness is not to end in death, but the glory of God, so that the Son may be glorified, the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then notice verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it is out of love that we see verse 6, So... Because he loved, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed longer. Why did he stay longer? He stayed longer to assure that Lazarus would be dead, that Lazarus would be buried, that Lazarus would be in the tomb a certain number of days. The the Jews held a belief, it's not a biblical belief, but they held a belief that, that the spirit of a man stayed around the tomb for three days, and then after three days the, the spirit departed. And then the person was, as it were, really, truly dead. And so Jesus stayed away, intentionally so that so that Lazarus would be dead so that Lazarus would be in the tomb four days and and the spirit according to secular tradition would have been gone from his body he would be truly in every sense dead and this was out of his love for Mary and Martha so that they would see him in a particular way see his compassion and see his power Martha didn't have that conception 
Martha didn't understand. Martha didn't believe that Christ would operate in a way different than what she believed he should operate. She had desires, she had longings, she had expectations for Christ. She had not aligned her will to his. She believed that his will needed to be aligned to her will. Notice something else about what Martha says about Jesus. Verse 22, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And, you, and we think at that moment, well, perhaps she is thinking that, that Christ will resurrect Lazarus. But we know that, that, that she's not believing that, that uh, Lazarus will be resurrected and that she wasn't referring to the resurrection because when Jesus goes to move the stone in verse 38, she responds in verse 39 by saying, No, Jesus, don't, don't do that. Don't do that, Jesus, because the stench is going to be unimaginable. We don't want to do that. She's not expecting the Savior to resurrect Lazarus. She doesn't believe that. She doesn't believe the compassion of Christ. She doesn't believe the pity that Christ has for her. She doesn't believe that Christ has a good will for her. She doesn't believe in the power and authority of Christ. She had a faulty comprehension of Christ's purposes. She didn't believe that he knew uh, what to do in that circumstance. And she had a faulty comprehension of Christ's ability. Did he have the power to act? And she would believe that he didn't. One of the reasons, my friends, that we grieve or become angry or grow despondent, even in our regular circumstances, never mind in COVID-19 circumstances, is that at the core of our hearts, we simply do not believe that God is wise in doing what he is doing or that he is powerful to accomplish what he has promised to accomplish. We, we think this one thing, this circumstance, this, this trial, this burden I'm going through, I think nationally and internationally, the world right now is thinking COVID-19, every molecule of COVID-19 has eked out beyond the power and authority and wisdom of God. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't care. He's incompetent to control it. This one thing has surpassed his understanding. This one thing has surpassed his ability to work. My friends, even though some hardship has happened to you does not mean that God has lost his sovereignty. Hardship and death are not part of our plan for our lives and we don't think that it should be God's plan for our lives either. Yet Jesus said that in relation to Lazarus, it was his death that was the means to demonstrating in a particular way, in a, in a gracious way, in a significant way, God's glory in a way that could not be demonstrated otherwise. It took Lazarus' death for the family to see the magnificence and the power and authority of God's glory. What was true of Lazarus is true of us as well. As we think about unbelief and fear and anxiety and worry and COVID-19 and its relationship to all of those things, really what we have is an interpretive problem. We have misinterpreted our situation. Just as Mary and Martha misinterpreted Lazarus' situation, they misinterpreted what God was doing. They, they didn't have an opportunity to peek behind the curtain, as it were, to understand the mind of God and the will of God, so they misinterpreted. 
and they misinterpreted the power of God and Christ's ability to meet them in their need, so we, in COVID-19 and in all of our burdens, when we are tempted to be anxious and despair and worry, we're interpreting our situations wrongly. We've misunderstood what God is doing. We've, we've misunderstood God's ability, God's competence. And in His grace, our Savior kindly, compassionately, tenderly ministers um, to Martha and corrects her with four words. He provides for her four correcting, compassionate words. Notice verse 23, the first of the words. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Now the resurrection is obviously rooted in New Testament. We, we see the resurrection in, in all of its glorious technicolor through the resurrection of Christ. But even in the Old Testament, there was an understanding of the resurrection. For instance, Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Perhaps in the most significant passage in the Old Testament about the resurrection, Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so there he says all men will be resurrected, some to life and some to eternal kinds of death. So so in the Old Testament, there is an understanding about the resurrection and Jesus himself had promised the resurrection. So we, we find that promise in chapter 6, verse 39. He says, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. So, so Jesus says in John chapter 6, There is coming a resurrection day for all who will believe in me whom the Father has granted to me. Jesus reminds Martha, of of his compassion, his care, his concern for the family by reminding her of the resurrection. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. She misunderstood what Jesus said. And so, so she says to him, I know that he'll rise again on the resurrection in the last day. She can only think about the last day. She's not thinking about Christ's ability to meet her in that moment, in in that need. And so Jesus offers to her a second word of compassion. Notice verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. This is the fifth of Jesus' great I am statements in the Gospel of John. And all of these, either directly or indirectly, refer to him as as life. He is the only source of eternal life. He is the only source of real life, of genuine life. And, and these I am statements are rooted in the original I am statement that God made to, eight, to uh, Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. It is an affirmation of Christ's deity. It is an affirmation of his equality with the Father. And notice that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he's talking about two separate things. They're not identical terms, but he's talking about life in two different ways. First, he says, 
I am the resurrection. That is, I am able to bring to life that which is dead. And then he says, I am also the life. That is, I am able to keep alive all those whom I raise. So it is, it is an ability to bring to life and it is ability to sustain life. And Christ, he says, does both things. He has every power and authority over life. Death is no obstacle to him. Lazarus' death was not an obstacle to him then, and his own death will not be an obstacle to him later. Christ's life, the the life The eternal life that Christ has and gives is different both in quantity and quality than anything else that we know about life. It is unending, it is eternal, it is infinite, it is immense in its power and it's an authority. And so Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a reminder that she is not destitute, she is not lost, she has not lost everything with Lazarus' death, but there is something that is coming that will minister her to her that is compassionate and kindness towards her. There's another compassionate word and correcting word that Jesus gives her. It's in verse 26. And he says, And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It is a reminder that for the believer in him, physical death will culminate in spiritual life. There, there, is a, there is a kind of death that really is not death for the believer. And when the believer dies, it's not really death. It is actually the means by which we are transferred into real life, into genuine life, into full life. For the believer, there is no such thing as death because there is no such thing for the believer in Jesus Christ as spiritual death. He says, he, verse 26, will never die. In fact, Jesus is trying to be emphatic. And so in, in the original, what he actually said was a, was a double negative. And, and, and grammatically, a double negative is wrong in English. So we don't translate the double negative. But actually what he says is he will not never die forever. So for all of eternity, he will not never die. He It is Jesus' way of piling up negatives to assure this will not happen. There is no death for the believer, for the one who trusts in him. Friends, belief in Jesus Christ may not prevent physical death, but it will prevent perpetual death. It will prevent perishing death, eternal death. Physical death has no effect on the length of our eternal life. It cannot inhibit our eternal life. It does not stop our eternal life. And since God keeps us alive eternally, we should not ever despair over temporal death, over physical death. He is not defeated. He is not compromised. He is not overwhelmed by physical illness, by physical death. Friend, are you believing that COVID-19 similarly cannot take away your eternal life as a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you genuinely believing that Christ is powerful, that God is powerful over death, and that if you are in Him, that what Jesus said is true, you will never die? Do you believe that, friend? Or is our worry 
is our anxiety, are our fears, saying something different about our belief in God's compassion and God's power. These first three statements that Jesus gives to Mary deal with the issue of death and they're given to encourage a despondent woman um, and a despondent heart. And these three statements culminate in the question that Jesus offers at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? That's the fourth word of compassion. That's the fourth word of correction. Do you believe this? What will encourage Martha in her grief is a correct understanding of the power of God and a willingness to submit to Him and to trust in Him. And Jesus is testing her heart. Do do you really believe? Do you affirm what you have been saying to me these years I have known you, that you believe in me? And notice how she responds, verse 27. She said to Him, Yes, Lord. And here what follows is one of the great uh, declarations about the Messiahship, the deity, the personhood of Christ that we find in the New Testament. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. That is, I have believed that you are the Messiah. And you are not only the Messiah, but you are the Son of God. Even he who comes into the world. I believe that you are incarnate God. I believe that you are enthroned God. I believe that you are a member of the Trinity. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the promised one. It is, it is without a doubt one of the clearest testimonies to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus asks, do you believe? And she answers unhesitatingly, yes, I believe. What do you think and what do you say when suffering and death comes? Do you trust God to do what is best in your life? And do you trust that God has the power to do what is best in your life? This is the test of all men in all times, in all situations. This is the test in every suffering, in every difficulty. And it is certainly the test of this hour with COVID-19. The question is not just, am I aware of his ability? Am I aware that he cares? But the question is, do I have confidence that he alone is the source of life and that I can trust him and be confident in him? This is one of the purposes and tests that Jesus is working in Martha and Mary through Jesus, through, excuse me, Lazarus' death. Do you believe is the great question of life. And what Martha said revealed what she believed about God. What Jesus said to her was the most compassionate response because it corrected her faulty understanding of God. Jesus has been moving her towards understanding that He cares, that God cares. He's helping her to reinterpret her circumstances. He's helping her to reinterpret her situation. God is trustworthy. God is stable. God is the source of all we need, even in trying times. God is trustworthy, even in despair and death. In troubling times, we need to interpret our situations 
we need to interpret our understanding of God in light of what the Scriptures say about God. Do we believe in Him? Do we really, genuinely trust Him? And what do our responses, what do our actions, what do our words actually say about whether or not we believe Him? Do we believe that He is wisely working the circumstances into our lives for our good? And do we believe that He has authority over life and ability to resurrect us and keep us alive? Not just alive today, but alive eternally. That's Jesus and Martha. And we find there a compassionate word, a compassionate word that helps her reinterpret her circumstances according to God's truth, according to who God is. Let's also see Jesus and Mary and compassionate tears. Jesus and Mary and compassionate tears. So immediately after Martha responds to Jesus, verse 27, she gets up, she goes back home, she finds her sister. She tells her sister, Jesus is asking for you. Would you come with me to see Jesus? Evidently, that's that's not in the text, but evidently Jesus had told her, go get Mary. I want to talk to Mary as well. So Mary also goes towards Jesus and and all this cohort of people who were there weeping and wailing and making noise. They They go along with her because they want to make noise with her at the grave where they think she is going. And she sees Jesus. And notice what... What, Jesus, what she says to Jesus, uh, verse 32, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the very same thing that Martha had just said to Jesus. The two women, again, had been talking about these things. This was their expectation. This is what they desired Jesus Christ to do. But Mary comes with a slightly different bent Notice verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Jesus saw her weeping and her weeping was a different kind of a weeping. It was a wailing. It was a moaning. It's a, it, it, it's a word that denotes it's over. It's all ended. There's no hope. I'm in, I'm in absolute despair. There's nothing that can give me any hope and any confidence. It is an un- uncontrolled and emotive reaction. It is, it is the pit of despondency. It is the pit of despair. It is longing. It is, it is sorrow that is uncontrolled. And Jesus saw that. And that sight of Mary in such despondency elicited Jesus' own response. Notice verse 33. He was deeply moved in spirit. That word deeply moved is not just that he had a little tingling inside of him, but it's a word that was actually used um, of animals. It was used specifically about horses and, and a horse snorting kind of in anger. So a horse breathing heavily through its nose and in an, in an angered response to something that's going on around him. It, it refers to an, ignorant, an, an indignant anger and, and a violent displeasure. Not only is Jesus deeply moved, though, not only is he moved towards anger, but notice what else it says in verse 33. He was troubled. That means he was agitated. He, he trembled. So internally there was, there was a movement of his 
of his inner body. So he's, it's as if his, his whole body is in deep agitation. And combined, these words indicate that his response was far more than just empathy. He just doesn't feel pity for her. He is responding in a deeply emotional way to her circumstances. Some have suggested that he was angry over the insincerity of the mourners and the commotion that was going around Mary, and that's certainly possible. Some have suggested that he was grieved in the moment because he was anticipating his own movement towards the cross that would come shortly after this. But I think what is going on here is Jesus is looking at at Martha and then he is looking at Mary and he is seeing the devastation that comes from death. He is seeing the devastation that is wrought from sin and and the influence of sin and how sin has corrupted all of nature and introduced death into this world. And he's indignant, he's angry, and he is anticipating his correction of, of that influence of death and sin in this world that he would accomplish at the cross. He is agitated over this death and he's anticipating what he will do to fix this problem, this devastation in his friend's life. Notice what the theologian B.B. Warfield has written. Jesus was not moved by uncontrollable grief, but by irrepressible anger. And that anger led him to the shortest verse in the Scriptures, verse 35, Jesus wept. This is the only time in the New Testament where that verb, wept, is used. It's not a word of uncontrollable weeping, as in verse 33 with Mary, but it is a kind of quiet grief Jesus is grieving. He's, he's angered over sin. He's angered over death. He's angered over the devastation of what sin has wrought in his friend's life as well as in the lives of everyone else around him. And he's also deeply compassionate towards those who are suffering from sin and death. And, and even as he grieves though, he is in control. He's not out of control. He's, he's not despairing. He's not lamenting. As one writer has said, this is the shortest verse in the Bible, but no verse carries more meaning in it. He indeed is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would have us to know that he understands the burdens of sin. He understands the burdens of illness. He understands the burdens of weakness. He understands the burdens of death. He's acquainted with them. He identifies with them. He understands. He is compassionate towards us. The first time I preached this passage, I actually preached just verse 35. Jesus wept. I preached that passage about 20 years ago when a 12-year-old girl was murdered in Granbury and I was called by the family to do that funeral and to a community that was reeling in sorrow, to a family that was devastated by the untimely, the grossly immoral death of their daughter. This, this was a word that was needed to be heard. The Christ, that God is compassionate He cares. 
And friends, he hates what has happened. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards has said. Jesus not only wept in the past, but listen to what he says. Jesus has the same compassion now he has ascended into glory. There is still the same encouragement for bereaved ones to go and spread their sorrows before him. Jesus was compassionate on earth and he is compassionate in heaven still. The love of God, the compassion of God was communicated to Mary by the tears of God. God is sovereign. He is not indebted towards us, but he is deeply compassionate towards us in our weakness and our pitiable conditions. Listen to what Jeremiah Burroughs has written in that outstanding book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, some will say, yes, but you do not know what our afflictions are. Our afflictions are such as you do not conceive of because you do not feel them. Yet I am sure that there can be no afflictions in this world as great as the mercies that you have. If it were only this mercy that you have this day of grace and salvation continued to you, it is a greater mercy than any affliction. Oh, friend, you have a Savior who knows. You have a Savior who cares. Notice that to one sister, Jesus said four things. To another sister, he did two things but both revealed his compassionate love towards them. Every person has an inadequate understanding of who God is, an insufficient theology, including an insufficient theology about suffering. And friend, this morning, if you, do not, if you believe that God does not care, then see his tears. Death not only angers him, He's done what is needed to conquer death and vanquish the worst of our foes. He cares enough about our suffering, about sin, about death, that he would go to the cross to redeem us. And if you believe God can't fix us, then hear his word. There is a resurrection coming and he's working. We might grieve, but we do not grieve as those who are hopeless. He is adequate for us. He is powerful to us. There is more. Not only does Jesus care about our problem, we've already hinted at it. Jesus has already hinted at it. But he has addressed the root cause of our problem, our sin problem and our death problem by the resurrection. And in the resurrection, we see this reality, the competence of Christ Can Jesus do something about our suffering? Can Jesus do something about our suffering? What does the resurrection power of Jesus Christ reveal about him so that we will believe in him? Does Jesus have the power? Is Jesus competent to do something because he is compassionate towards us? Three realities about Jesus' competence. The resurrection reveals the glory of God. The resurrection reveals the glory of God. Notice Verse 38, Jesus again being deeply moved within. Again, this is, this is, this is that sense of agitation. He's, he's angered at the circumstance. He comes in that state 
with a righteous anger against sin and against death to the tomb. Verse 38. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Jesus commands the stone to be removed and Martha can only think about one thing. Lord, by this time there will be a stench because he has been dead for four days. He, he's really dead, Jesus. Uh, he, he not only died, but, but the spirit has been gone from him and, and, and we know that he's really dead. There, remember, there, there's no embalming in this time and the body is just wrapped, covered in spices, put in the, put in the tomb, but, but decay would have been, been going on for some number of days, for these four days now and, and the stench of the decay would have overwhelmed the spices that would have been put on his body. Jesus, don't, don't open the tomb. You, you don't want to open the tomb. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus commands the stone to be moved because he's not thinking about the stench. He's thinking about God's glory. Now, he was clear with the disciples that Lazarus' death was about the glory of God. That's verse 4. But Jesus also, when was when he was talking to Martha about the resurrection principles, it's also his way, it was his way of saying to her, "This is about something bigger than you. This is about the the demonstration, the the magnification of God's glory. God's glory, in this case, was revealed through Lazarus' death. In this circumstance, nothing could reveal God's glory as much." as if Lazarus had died. There, there was no circumstance by which Jesus might have ministered to Lazarus, to Martha, to Mary, that would have revealed glory as much as if he had allowed Lazarus to die, which he did, and then gone and resurrected him. Friends, we must not assume that illness and loss and suffering and death are opposed to God being glorified. Sometimes God's glory, God's nature, the revelation of who God is, is most revealed by healing, and sometimes it is most revealed by death. Friends, do not despair if you do not receive what you think you deserve from God. He will give you what is best. You might think, I have lost what is best. But understand that God knows what is best. And that is exactly what he will give you. We often ask for what is fair or right in life. Instead of of asking for what we believe is fair, we should be asking for God's glory to be demonstrated through us. Whether we live or whether we die. And be content with either circumstance. The resurrection reveals the glory of God. The resurrection also reveals the unified purpose of God. We see this in verses 41 and 42 in Jesus' prayer. So they remove the stone. Verse 41, Jesus raised his eyes, looks to heaven and addresses his father. And as, as I read the prayer, listen to all the different ways that Christ demonstrates his unity with the father, that he and the father are one. So he says, verse 41, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So he addresses him as father. And and notice he doesn't say our father, but he addresses him as father, the particular relationship that he alone has with God the Father. He's speaking in a unique Trinitarian way. No Jew would have ever spoken in prayer in this way. And Jesus claims a unique unity with God the Father in heaven. It is his way of saying in that address, you and I, we are one. We have an intimacy and fellowship as father and son that is not replicated in that way anywhere else. Notice as well, he has said, you have heard me. Evidently, he had had a plan for the resurrection or resuscitation of Lazarus. And he had gone to the father and and the father had affirmed the plan. They were unified in the plan. He had heard previously the prayer that Jesus had prayed on his behalf. And then Jesus says, verse 42, not only did you hear me as I prayed for Lazarus, but I know, I excuse me, I knew that you always hear me. There is There is always a reception of Christ's prayers by the Father. The Father never rejects the Son's prayers. It is it is a way of saying, not only were we unified in this one prayer about Lazarus, but we are unified in every prayer because we are always of one mind and of one heart. It is not that way with people who are in the world. So he points to others, and he says, I prayed this because of the people standing around me so that they may believe. So they have a different understanding. They have a different relationship with God. They are not one with the Father as Christ is one with the Father. And he says, what I want them to believe is that you sent me, that he and the Father are one in deity one in purpose, one in harmony, one in action, that the Son, intimately acquainted with the Father, sent by the Father for a particular purpose to earth as the incarnate Christ. The Father and the Son were united in purpose in Lazarus' resurrection, and they were united in the use of God's infinite power in resurrecting Lazarus. The compassionate, competent Christ's asks the competent, compassionate Father for the expression of the power, and they are in full agreement. The Father, the Son, both care, and both have the power to do something about what they care about. Oh, friends, don't make the mistake of thinking that there are diverse levels of love and compassion and wisdom in the Godhead. Don't Don't fall into the trap that the world has of saying, well, Jesus is the one who loves and is compassionate and he could do a few things, but he can't do everything. And God in heaven is an all-powerful God, but he's really not compassionate. No No friends, the Father and the Son are both one in their compassion and one in their competency, one in their power. If you're a believer, that is our hope, that is our confidence that Christ and the Father are always working good towards us out of their compassion, out of their power. We see one last reality about the competence of Christ. It's in verses 43 and 44. 
The resurrection of Lazarus reveals the power of Christ. The resurrection reveals the power of Christ. This actually, what happens to Lazarus is actually foreshadowed in chapter 5, verse 25, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's it's not just speaking about spiritual truth, but I think he's foreshadowing there what's going to happen with Lazarus. Lazarus will hear the voice of Christ and he will respond and he will come to life. Now, Keith has been telling me for years and trying to convince me for years that there's electricity in heaven and because there's electricity in heaven, there will be electric guitars. I don't know. Keith is giving me the thumbs up that that's actually true. I don't know that that's true, but if Keith gets if Keith gets electric guitars in heaven, I get video replay. And then video replay, I want to see this event. And I want to see verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come forth." And it's, it's, it's literally even stronger than that. It's, it's literally here, outside. And, and Lazarus came, came bounding out. Now some commentators have been careful to explain that Jesus identified Lazarus particularly by name. Lazarus, here, now. As if, as if he didn't, if he hadn't identified Lazarus and he had only said, here, outside, that all of the tombs in the area would have been emptied out. And that's certainly possible. But friends, what happened? How extensive was this miracle? Jesus spoke, and a dead man heard, and a dead man responded, and a dead man didn't just come back to life, but he came back to full life. All, all the vestige of that which killed him, all the decay of those four days in the tomb, all that is instantly removed and he is fully alive. He came forth. He came out. And he was alive. Jesus wants to make clear to those who are around that Lazarus is really alive. And notice what he says, verse 44, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I I, I think it's Jesus' way of every time they take a loop of of that binding cloth from around Lazarus, every time they uncircle him with what he had been buried in, They're seeing increasing evidence and increasing movement and they're seeing he's really alive. He's come to life. This man didn't just go to a tomb and say, come forth. But when he went to the tomb and said, come out, a dead man came out alive. Friends, this this is exactly what what Jesus Christ does for us. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God, 
being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead and we were brought to life. What happened with Lazarus is a picture of what happens to every single one of us when we trust in Christ as Savior. This is redemption. This is reconciliation. This is the start of new life, eternal life, for every believer in Jesus Christ. Says um, Charles Spurgeon, we celebrate Gethsemane and Calvary and we find no bitterness in all their grief because death is swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection. This miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead prefigures what Christ will do in being resurrected himself and coming to life himself out of the tomb three days after he has been crucified. It is a picture for us of what he does for us. It is a picture of God's authority, of God's power, of God's competency. This demonstrates that Christ is capable. Now, friends, don't walk away this morning and say, well, that means that Jesus needs to bring to life everybody that suffers and dies. No, Christ doesn't promise to resurrect everyone no more than he emptied every grave while he was alive. But this does demonstrate that he has all authority. He has all power. He can do everything that he desires to do. Your circumstance, your situation, your difficulty, all of the implications of what COVID-19 is bringing into your life and my life today We need to hear Christ cares about that and Christ is fully competent to meet us in our need. Listen to what J.I. Packer has written. It has become conventional, he says, to think as if we are all going to live in this world forever and to view every case of bereavement as a reason for doubting the goodness of God. Whenever we see trouble, we think something's gone wrong. Whenever we see someone die, we think God has lost his power. God has lost his authority. God doesn't care. No, friend. God is fully compassionate. God is more compassionate towards us than we will ever be towards anyone else in our world. God is more powerful than anyone else can be. God is infinitely power. He has all authority and all ability. And in COVID-19... In your marriage difficulties, in your financial problems, in your relational difficulties, whatever your circumstance, whatever your trial, whatever your burden, I want you to hear two words this morning. Christ is compassionate and Christ is competent to meet you in your need. Our Father, we thank you for the competence of Christ. We thank you that he does care. We thank you that he does have infinite power to act on the compassion and care that he has towards us. Might we be confident this week to rest in him, to trust him, to truly believe that he is adequate for us in our circumstance, that he is adequate for COVID-19. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.